Our speaker this morning, as you, some of you were here already for our Sunday school time, and that is David Hilt from Ethnos Ministry. So Dave, why don't you come and share what the Lord has laid on your heart? Thank you. Every time I've been here, this is the second time I've just really been touched by the special music that's shared, thinking of that song, God of Compassion. You know, God has really blessed us with an avalanche of his goodness and his blessing, and we get to participate in that. And if you'll excuse me for a minute, I'm going to pull a laptop up here, and uh, we're going to advance. If you want to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16, we're going to be looking at verses 13 through 18. Uh, Before I get started, though, I would like to mention, oh, I have it right here. I would like to mention I have a table out there. You're welcome to sign up for our email newsletter, which we send out monthly. Uh, We're excited about things God is doing around the world. I do have some literature out there. Uh, I've got a little career sheet here. There's just about every career mentioned on here of positions that we're looking to fill. Uh, It's very interesting. When we begin looking for church planters, we're not only looking for those who can work among the people groups that we serve among, But, for instance, there were three of us together as families, three families placed into a tribe to work together as partners, partnership in working through the language, through the culture, uh, through the material we would need to do for literacy, for translation. And that can be anything from three families, or it could be two families and two single ladies. It could be two families, two single men. But in order to keep a team moving forward in what they do, Just as the military needs support troops functioning in the background to support what they do, in like manner, we need that also. Typically, it takes somewhere around 17 missionary units to keep three families working in an isolated area. So we're desperate for laborers. Uh, Each year, we have young people coming into our training, young people, middle-aged people. We even have retired people that come out and serve within the structure of the gifts and abilities that God has given them. So feel free to pick one of those up. We have short-term trips. Uh, We're doing internships. We just have all kinds of opportunities available for you. I'd invite you to pick up a sticker either from our Bible Institute. By the way, any young people looking to further your education, we strongly encourage young people before they step into college, come to our two-year Bible Institute. It's tuition-free. Uh, You get to study God's Word, all 66 of the books of the Bible, and you really begin to get to feel God's heart for the nation. So we have a Bible Institute sticker. We also have one for Ethnos 360. We invite you to put those on your water bottles and uh, just use that. But uh, just wanted to mention those items. But this morning, as I said, I want to look at Matthew chapter 16. And let me get my title slide up here. Hey, we're good to go. I want to look at the subject of lost people, and the title is, Have We Lost Our Focus of Vision? I I will be looking at Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 to 18 explicitly, and I want to consider that. But as American people, I begin to realize that our lives are dictated by time. Time is something that just swallows us up. You know, we come to church, we gather for a couple hours on a Sunday morning for uh, Sunday school, for worship. And sometimes we can hardly sit still. How about it? Have you ever nodded off in a service? Yeah, I have already. And uh, it's kind of interesting. I was talking with a pastor some months ago, and he was telling me that during the middle of the service, he had someone sitting down in one of the front rows, and uh, the gentleman took his shoes and socks off and trimmed his toenails while the pastor was preaching. So I don't know if that'll happen today. I'm, I'm not going to be that observant. But um, our philosophy as life as American people is to get all we can get as quickly as we can get doing as little as we can get. That's just deeply ingrained in us. And um, it's, it's opposite with our tribal people. Time doesn't dictate their lives. They have nowhere to go. They really have nothing to do apart from going into the jungle to hunt and to gather or to build their houses, whatever uh, consumes their daily life. So they're a lot different than what we are. And uh, their life, their philosophy of life is survival. They just have to claw it out where they live in, in, the, in the jungle, uh, trying to survive for another day. They gather the food that they need, and then it's back doing the same thing the next day. But, you know, for us, when we would gather for a church with our believers, uh, we were not gathered in a building like this with padded seats. We sat on cup boards, and services went, they could go anywhere from three to six hours. How would you like that? 
sitting on cup boards. And I can tell you, sitting on those cup boards, all kinds of things go to sleep. I've been numb up to my armpits. And it makes, makes it very interesting when you get up to walk when parts of your body are sleeping, you know. And you get lots of distractions. I don't think I've ever fallen asleep in one of the services that our, our tribal people have conducted because there's flies and, and there's dogs and there's pigs and chickens walking through the services. And moms are holding babies up and they're going potty on the dirt floor and just all manner of things. And uh, it's just very, very interesting with them. In one of our tribes, they actually have one of the elders sit in the back of the church, and he brings his wife's digging stick. A digging stick is just a length of stick about three feet long with a sharpened point on it. And that elder will sit in the back and watch for anyone that's nodding off during the service. And if someone nods off, he'll work his way up through, hunkered down, and he'll come up behind them and he'll take that stick and he'll snap it right on top of their head. And let me tell you, it gets them awake. I thought about bringing one of those sticks along and and putting one of our pastors in the back of the church today, but I didn't think we would need to do that. But uh, there's a lot to learn when we begin to compare uh, different cultures and, and the way that they operate. And I remember, I heard a story one time that there were students in high school and in their biology class, they were studying different species of birds. And the teacher had selected three or four different birds that they were studying, and they were learning about the anatomy of these birds. And on the day of the test, instead of giving them written out questions, the teacher brought a bird cage and had placed one of these birds in the cage with a blanket over it. And the teacher drew the blanket back so all you could see were the legs and the feet of the bird. And if you knew the material that the teacher taught, you could look at the legs and the feet of that bird and identify which one of the four species that she taught you about. I heard that there was a boy in the class that got very frustrated because he didn't know the material. And he got up and he stormed out of the classroom. And the teacher said to him, where, do you, where are you going? Who do you think you are? And he rolled his pant leg up and he said, who do I look like? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But who we are is important. Now, let me ask you this. When we meet somebody for the first time, what do we typically do? What do we typically do when we meet someone for the first time? I'll come down here. Hi, my name's Dave. We shake hands, don't we? And then what do we typically do after we shake hands? Is there any specific information that we like to exchange? Your name. Our name is very important. We want people to know who we are. What other information might we exchange when we meet someone for the first time? Where do you live? Yeah, where do you live? Uh, and it may be that we want people to know that because we live in a very prestigious neighborhood. And we want them to know what our social standing is. What other information may we ask? Family, job, all these different things. And you know what? When you begin to analyze it, it all focuses back to who we are, what we do, and how we spend our resources. We want people to know where we vacation. And it speaks of our status in life. And I want to delve into these verses in Matthew chapter 16 and look at the fact of have we lost our focus of vision. Let me go to the scriptures and, and just read these for you. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some John the Baptist, and others said Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say yourselves that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I say to you that you are Peter. And upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Let's go to prayer. Father, I thank you that we have this opportunity to unpack some of the words of Scripture today and to be able to grasp an understanding of what you're trying to communicate to us in light of losing our focus of vision for lost people. And Lord, as I had opportunity to uh, display through the presentation this morning during Sunday school, we know that there are thousands of people that still need to hear the gospel. So God, I pray that you might work through these Scriptures, work in our hearts, that we might come into an understanding of what you're trying to communicate to us this day in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to look at seven different points. I wish I would have made 
an outline to give to you, but I, I want to look at several perspectives in light of this subject. Have we lost our focus of vision? It says here in Matthew 16, 13, it says, Now when Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Depending what translation you have, it may say, Who do people say that I, the Son of Man, am? It was a question that he was putting forth to his disciples to see how the people were perceiving who he was. Now, he came into this region of Caesarea Philippi. It was a region known for idolatry. Matter of fact, they had a god there named Pan Baal. Of course, we read of the Baals in the Old Testament. But here in Caesarea Philippi in Jesus' day, people worshipped this god Pan Baal. And I can imagine Jesus gesturing out toward the land where these uh, gods were in asking this question, what are the people saying about me? How do they perceive me? I don't think Jesus was asking the question from the perspective of trying to find out how popular he was because people knew he was performing miracles. They knew he was different than any prophet that ever came. So he's asking his disciples, what is the general perspective? What is the view that people have of me? And of course, the disciples then give answer in verse 14. Some say John the Baptist, other Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And I got thinking about that. I could understand that they would say they viewed him as John the Baptist because they knew there was going to be a forerunner come before the Messiah. It stated that in the prophetic writings. So some of them said John the Baptist. And I look at this and I say, why did they say Jeremiah or one of the prophets? Were they thinking that they came back to life and that was he? No, I don't think that's what it was. But they were categorizing Jesus in with the prophets from long ago. They believed that he was a good man, but they did not recognize him as the Messiah. So he was looking for man's perspective on who he was. And of course, Jesus states there in verse 14 uh, what their focus of that was. And I'm wondering, what would happen if we went out onto the streets of Lebanon with a microphone and a recorder, and we ask people, or even using our smartphone and record it, who do you say Jesus is? What type of answers that we would get? I'm sure there would be people who have no clue who Jesus is. When we were living in York, uh, moving to Arizona, we had five nationalities represented on our street of 17 homes. And it was amazing, as we would talk with neighbors about the gospel, we come to find out they didn't even know who God was, let alone who Jesus was. And it's easy to make the assumptions that because people live in Christian America, that they know who God is, and people don't know who God is. So in looking at a public perspective, Jesus was asking the disciples, how do people perceive me? What do they perceive me to be? But he sets the stage for us to consider another focus, which is found in verse 15. And this is a personal point of view. Jesus now turns his attention to his followers, to his disciples, and he personalizes the question. And he says, but you, who do you say that I, the Son of Man, am? And I can't help but think there must have been stone-cold silence and the disciples being asked that question. It was easy for them to identify how the world was perceiving him to be, and perhaps the way that they disclosed to Jesus how the world was perceiving him to be, maybe that was reflective of their very own view of who he was. But I certainly believe that there must have been silence there for a moment, because as we read on in the text, we find out that Peter, only Peter, one of the twelve, was able to make a declaration of who he perceived Jesus to be, given an answer of who they thought he was. And uh, Jesus was interested in their personal point of view. Now, I want to deviate here for a minute. I mentioned to you early on here how we, when we meet one another for the first time, the greeting with the hand, the exchange of information that we have, it's not the same with our, our tribal people that we work with, our indigenous people. Their view of life is totally different than ours. And when two people meet for the first time, I look at the focus of what they look at and compare it to what we look at, and I find that they're more on target than what we are because their focus has to do with relational elements and their focus has to do with spiritual things. 
But I have to qualify that and say not spiritual things as you and I know spiritual things of God's Word and walking in the Spirit. No, their focus on spiritual things has to do with spiritism, which is not the spiritual things spoken of in the Bible. Because they worship spirits of dead ancestors. They believe that spirits are in the rocks, in the plants. Anything inanimate that they can see, they believe, is possessed by a spirit. And their duty in life, in order to experience freedom from the bondage of fear and to experience happiness, which they never do, is to placate those spirits in the right manner so bad things don't happen to them. So if I were meeting another, if I were a tribesman and I'm meeting another tribesman on a trail that I never met before, rather than shaking hands, our first and foremost thing would be to I- express information. Hey, have you learned how to placate the spirits of your dead ancestors? And he would say, no, I haven't figured that out yet. And he would say to you, have you figured it out? And I would say, no, I haven't figured it out. So their focus is on how they can be delivered from the darkness that they live in because it brings bondage and fear. I had a language helper who went out on a hunting party and he did not take enough arrows with him, so he borrowed some arrows from another tribesman. And uh, he used the arrows and when he got back to the village that day, his duty was to get some of his arrows and give them to the one who had loaned to him his arrows. And he failed to do that. And he went to sleep that night, and the next morning when he awakened, his friend who had loaned arrows to him showed up at his door, and he brought him a roasted sweet potato. And he thought, that was very generous that he brought me a roasted sweet potato. But then as he was sitting in his hut eating the sweet potato, it dawned on him. I borrowed arrows from him yesterday, and I did not return them. And within their structure of their culture, that was an offense. And now, in his mind, the way that played out, the gifting of the sweet potato was not a gift of generosity. It was a payback. And in his mind, receiving that, that sweet potato, his mind played that out as, oh, because I did not return the arrows within the allotted time, my friend gave me a, a sweet potato, and he put a curse on that sweet potato, and now bad things are going to happen to me today. And what he decided was he had planned to go over here and hunt. And he knew, according to his culture, that if he left his house and went that direction, because his belief was that the person who put the curse on the sweet potato, if he left his house and went over there to hunt, something bad was going to happen to him that day. But because they tried to manipulate these spirits, he got the idea, I still want to go hunt in that area today. So you know what he did? When he left his house, instead of taking the trail to go there, he came out of his house and he walked all the way around his house. And now in his mind, the spirit thought he was going off this direction and he came around the back of the house and he still went off that way. And he figured, spirits don't know. You know, I just manipulated. I I fooled them. But as he was walking down the trail, a big limb fell out of the tree. And what do you think his first thought was? (laughs) That didn't work. I didn't placate the spirits because they allowed a limb to fall out of a tree to harm me. And now he's in this vicious cycle, round and round and round and round. So different than ours. And then the relational aspect has to do with how may we be related to one another? Because if we're related to one another through intermarriage, then if I'm buying a second or third bride, you're going to have to participate in the bride price. Or maybe if we're going into a tribal battle, you're going to have to come alongside me as an ally. So it's this vicious cycle round and round, so different than what our focus is. You know, we have our icebreakers when we meet with one another, but these people have such a life that is bound up in fear and darkness. So the spiritual things of their life is their uh, ancestral beliefs. So even though their focus seems to be more on target that it's spiritual and relational, it's in relationship to the, the, the dynamics of their culture that just holds them in bondage. But what if we were focused more on the spiritual elements of a person when we meet them to inquire what their eternal destiny is? We don't do that, but we should take concern for that. But it's a matter of perspective. Let me ask you in this light. What would you say if I came to you and and said, let's pick one of your pastors, okay? If I came to you and said, who do you say Tony is? What kind of answers might I get back from you? It depends on how well you know him. You know his character traits. You know his sense of humor. All these different elements that play into his life would be the foundation of basis on how you would disclose to me how you view him. Okay? 
even Pastor Wayne, you know, you may say, oh, yeah, he's a character, you know, and then go on to tell me things about him. I've gotten to know him a little, and I think he is a character, okay? But uh, he's a very good character. But back to verse 15, Jesus says to his disciples, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Though the question was addressed to them corporately, I think Jesus was expecting a personal response from each of the disciples. And no one speaks. Surely you would have thought that these men knew Jesus because they walked with him in ministry for three years. And uh, I don't know if any of you have watched on TV the, the series called The Chosen. And I've been intrigued by some of those in the disciples coming alongside Jesus and just how, how clueless they were about who he was. It, it portrayed that very well. But Jesus here, he asked, who do you, a personal proud pronoun, who do you say Jesus is? So first we saw from a public perspective. Now we see a personal point of view. And thirdly, Peter makes this powerful declaration in verse 16 when he says, Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. It's phenomenal to realize that Peter gave such an answer. It was very typical of Peter always to be the impulsive one, the first one always to speak. Peter was known for putting his foot in his mouth over and over and over again. And I think from the very first time, um, Peter might have recognized something when Jesus asked this question, who do you say that I am, in that he saw it from a spiritual perspective. But it wasn't just prompted within from Peter as we go on in the verses, we'll see that God's Spirit was the one who prompted him with that answer in saying, who do you say that I am? And it's interesting, if you unpack that, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? It's encased in that is God incarnate, Son of Man, God incarnate. And then where he says, who do you say that I, the Son of Man, am? We get the I am that we learn in the Old Testament which is talking about eternal God. So Jesus goes on there. Peter gives this declaration and says, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And in verse 17, Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Peter's declaration that Jesus is the Christ identified our Lord as the Redeemer of the world. Uh, and it pointed ahead to Jesus going to the cross, but yet Peter wasn't fully aware of the things that had been prophesied and written of Jesus as he gave this declaration that, that thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And so Jesus says here, you are blessed. It was a very profound statement. And then look what he does. He says, blessed art thou, what does he say? Simon Barjona. He calls him by his proper name. Uh, those of you who have had children, have you ever had your kids when they were small, they were doing something that, that they weren't supposed to do, and you want to get their attention? What do you say? We have a daughter named Jennifer Marie. She's 45 years old now. And when she was little, she would be doing things that she shouldn't be doing. And when we wanted to get her full attention, I would say, Jennifer Marie Hilt. And boy, she would buck up. I mean, she was right on, on, on target looking at your face to find out what was going on. What was the significance of Jesus calling Peter by his proper name? I, I, I think there's a couple things in order. First, the seriousness of the declaration deemed that Jesus would address Peter by his full name. And then secondly, something I saw was there was a parallel to Peter's name as it was with the Son of God. He calls him Simon Barjona. If you break down the Barjona, it literally means, Bar means son of. And then that literally meant son of John, or Simon Bar-Jonah. His father's name was John, but transliterated, it was actually Jonah. And he's saying to him, he's trying to get his attention in the declaration that he made, that he is blessed by the Father. But it says, flesh and blood, you did not realize this on your own. It was the Spirit of God who revealed this truth to you in stating that thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And we'll see as we go on uh, just how interesting it was that this fits into what Jesus is trying to portray in asking this question. He says, my Father in heaven. So this indicates to us that it was a work of the Trinity. The Spirit revealed it to uh, Simon, but it was through the Trinity. So now we come to a purposeful plan. 
Look what Jesus said. He says, I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not overpower it. So Jesus is declaring here that there is a purposeful plan for the disciples that he is going to build, he is going to establish his church, and it is going to endure forever. So in disclosing that, he says to Peter, he will build his church upon this rock. Now we know Peter's name translated means little stone. So is Jesus referencing Peter saying that I'm going to build my church and Peter, I'm going to build it upon you. That's not at all what he's saying. If you translate this according to its context, and we looked at context this morning, if you translate this according to context, what Jesus is saying, he is going to build his church on the foundation of the declaration that Peter just made when he said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus Christ is the foundation of the church. And then he goes on in this verse. He says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. So Jesus is giving authority to his disciples that his church will stand and that the message of the gospel will eventually be carried forth by them. Uh, it's it's kind of interesting. If we look at Jesus as the foundation of the church, he's the cornerstone, we realize that, that God used Peter in a very meaningful way to bring the gospel to the Gentile world. When we go into Acts chapter 1, verse 8, it talks there about being his witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, it says in Samaria, and then unto the uttermost parts of the earth. I've heard people unpack this verse saying that Jerusalem is the immediate area where you live. Those who are closest to you, your family, your neighbors, reaching them with the gospel. I've also heard them say Samaria is the outlying areas. And then going to the uttermost part of the earth. Where's the uttermost part of the earth? For us today, it is the unreached and unengaged people of the world that need to hear the gospel that are waiting and waiting and waiting. And you know, it's interesting. It tells us in Revelation that one day, surrounding God's throne are going to be worshipers. It says from every tribe, from every people, from every tongue, and every language. There is a root word involved with that, and it is ta-ethne. Ta-ethne is the Greek word that we get our English word ethnicity from. So back in Genesis chapter 12, when God said to Abraham, he, through him he will bless all nations. He's not talking about countries of the world. He's talking about ethnic peoples that he will bless. And how can it ever be that one day there will be people worshiping around God's throne from every tribe, from every tongue, from every people, from every nation, every ta-ethne around the throne unless we complete the task that God has given us to do. So Jesus is the foundation of the church. Peter was instrumental in bringing the gospel to the Gentile world. And the witness of that is every one of us sitting in this auditorium today. We would not be gathered here had it not been for the faithful witness of Peter bringing the gospel to the Gentiles. But yet Jesus is the one who is the foundation of the church. So we had a public perspective then uh, Peter gets to express a personal point of view, being blessed by God the Father to make that proclamation that thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. It was a divine revelation which had this purposeful plan. But now there's a flip side to Peter's focus, and I want to look at that. Drop down to verses 21. Let me put that up on the screen for you. Matthew 16, 21 says, From that time Jesus began to point out to his disciples that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and to suffer many things from the elders, from the chief priests, from the scribes, and to be killed and raised up on the third day. You and I have the scripture, so we know what that's talking about. It's talking about Jesus going to the cross. And even though there were prophetic writings pointing toward Jesus going to the cross, the disciples still hadn't wrapped their head around that. So Jesus is disclosing now to the, the disciples what is going to happen to him. Okay, this is brand new information for them. But there's a shift in Peter's perspective. Before Peter saw that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God, he has a proper perspective of who God is. But now look what it says in verse 22. And yet Peter took him aside and began to rebuke the Lord, saying, God forbid, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But Jesus turned and said to him, Peter, get behind me, Satan, or get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's purpose, but men's. 
So here, a few moments earlier, Peter had a proper perspective of who Jesus was. When he hears that Jesus is going to the cross, he rebukes him. Peter has an improper perspective. Peter failed to understand. He had an improper perspective. What happened to his perspective? How did he lose that sharpness, that focus of vision? He was allowing another to influence his thinking. You know, we come to church, we gather for worship, we're instructed in the Word, and we're challenged. The pastor challenges us to go out and how we should live. And sometimes we go out the door of the church and we, we forget the things that we're taught. We're, we forget the instruction that we receive of how we should live throughout the week and be witnesses to those that we're impacted with. I said to my wife one time, I said, I think I'm going to start a campaign and I'm going to go around America and change the doors of the churches. And she said, what do you mean? I said, well, it seems that when we go through the doors, it changes us. We forget what we are supposed to do as Jesus' disciples. And of course, she said, Dave, I don't think it's a, the doors of the church. It's the hearts of the people, and it is. It's what we do with the living word that God has given to us. Years ago, when I was working for a large firm in York, Pennsylvania, before we were involved in any type of ministry, when I came to faith in Jesus and embraced the gospel, I was being discipled eight and a half hours a week for a year and a half. I, let, I mentioned this morning in Sunday school that I led another individual to Christ 12 hours after I became a new creation in Christ. And I just struck up a conversation with a, a gentleman at the corporation I never met before, walking into work one day, and I confronted him about his eternity. And he said, this is amazing. My family has been speaking to me for years about the gospel, and I understand the gospel, but no one ever confronted me on making a choice. And I said, well, I'm doing that right now. He said, I'd love to trust Jesus as my Savior. And he acknowledged Christ right there. And I sat down and I went through some scripture with him that I was shown the night before. And I said, come back and meet me at lunchtime. I want to show you from the Bible the security of the believer because that was huge for me. And um, coming out of the drug culture, I needed to have the assurance of faith that I was in God's family and I could not lose my salvation. And I wanted him to experience that as well. So he came back. And we went through the scriptures, and I showed him the security of the believer. And he asked me a question that was as life-changing for me as what the gospel was when I embraced it. And his question was, what's next? What's the next step? And I said, I don't know, but my wife and I are meeting with this pastor tonight. So what I learn in discipleship, you come back tomorrow, and I will teach you. And we ended up developing a program uh, within a year called Each One Reach One, Each One Teach One. So as I was discipling this one, he reached another, and he began discipleship with that one as I was discipling him while I was being discipled by the pastor. And it really took off, and it was very encouraging. But, you know, working at that air conditioning firm and being involved in evangelism and discipleship, both my wife and I got to the point where we said, there's got to be something more we can do in serving the Lord. And then we read those verses in Romans 15:20, where Paul was saying that there are people living in areas of his known world at that time who never had an opportunity to embrace the gospel. And that was Paul's desire. And that became our desire that we would want to go and reach people living beyond the reach of the gospel. And I can remember working for that air conditioning firm. And I thought, my goodness, I'm working for this firm that builds air conditioners. What in the world is an air conditioner going to do anybody who perishes and goes to hell? And I really got miserable in my job. And it was about that time God began motivating our hearts to go serve among unreached people. And you know, mission conferences are a wonderful thing. We heard the report from the family in Hong Kong this morning. You're going to hear more reports over the course of the next month. And that's wonderful that we get to hear these things. But how does it take root in our heart? I want to show you some statistics here. There are 7.9 billion people in the world. There are 7,151 languages spoken in the world. We looked at this in Sunday school. There are 16,300 people groups. 6,958 of those are unreached people groups, meaning there is less than 2% Christian witness among them. There's 3,250 people groups that we call unengaged, unreached, that have no Bibles, they have no Christians, there are no churches anywhere within proximity of them to have an opportunity to hear the gospel. Three billion people who never heard of Jesus. That's pretty staggering. Now look at this. Every time your watch ticks, every second, 1.8 people die. I also put in brackets behind it, every 1.8 seconds, there are 4.3 children being born. Think of that. 
Okay, so the, the birth rate is ahead of the, the death rate. But 108 people die per minute. 6,480 people will have died by the time we end this service. Can you imagine that? Worldwide. 155,000 die every day. And it just blows my mind to realize this. And then 1,088,640 people die every week or 56 million people a year. Think of that. 56 million people a year. Of course, if we look at the birth rate, that's much higher. And I, came, I thought, wow, according to life expectancy in America, which is about 77.28 years, is the average life expectancy of an American. And across your 77.28 years, look how many people die. Half the world's population dies across our lifetime. Of course, it's being multiplied over and over. And my question is, how many of those will enter eternity without Jesus? And where do we stand in light of doing something about that? Staggering. Here's another one for you. At any given time in America, there are 70,000 young people studying the Bible in Bible colleges, in Bible institutes, and seminaries. This is not liberal arts Christian colleges. This is specifically studying the Bible with the intent of serving somewhere in ministry. We know out of the 70,000, 66,500 of them will pursue church-related ministries or Christian education. I heard of a church in Manhattan, New York, a large, well-known church, who the pastor moved on, and they were accepting um, applications of candidates for that church, and they received in one week more than 500 applications. So that meant 500 people were sitting idly by waiting to take a church. Think of that. So 66,000 of the 70,000 will pursue uh, Christian ministry. Only 5% of them, which is 3,500 people, will choose to serve in missions. Now, here's what's really mind-blowing about this. The 66,500 people will minister to 4.25% of the world's population that live here in Christian America. And the 5% will go out to... 95.75% of the world's population. I mean, we got something backward here. You know, as a church, we need to pray people onto the harvest fields of the world that they might hear the gospel. And the fact of have we lost our focus of vision, I want to show you one more thing here. There's a promising pursuit. It says, Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wants to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life is going to lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake is going to find it. And I think probably the better way I can demonstrate these verses to you is the fact that Jesus says there's great value in denying ourselves. Uh, the fact that we give up our ambition for the sake of lost souls for others. I want to go over to Luke chapter 18. You don't need to turn there. But let me read these verses to you to explain these in Matthew 16. It says, two men went up into the temple. You're familiar with the story. One was a Pharisee and the other was a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and began praying this in regard to himself. He says, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. They're swindlers, they're crooked, they're adulterers, or even like this tax collector. He says, I fast twice a week. I pay tithe of all that I get. And you know what he's doing? He's boasting upon himself what he does. He's trying to make himself look good in the sight of others. And then it tells us the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to raise his eyes toward heaven, but he was beating his chest saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And it says, I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself would be exalted. Now, let me illustrate it this way. When I was a kid, you guys know what these are? You young people know what these are? They were called scales of justice. My mom had one of these on the dining room table. It had much bigger trays on it. And she would put artificial fruit in it. It used to drive me nuts. It's like, put real fruit down. I want to come home from school and grab a real apple, not a wax apple. But here's what's happening with the, this, uh, this tax or the publican. On the right side, you see the pan is weighed, weighed down. Okay, He was weighing it down by his good works. I give of all that I have. I fast. 
He's putting all of his credentials on the scale, and what happens? It's weighted down. But in contrast to that, the tax collector on the other side empties himself of any goodness that he has or any deeds that he has done. He empties himself and says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Look who is exalted. It's interesting, isn't it? Because it says, for everyone who exalts himself, puts all of his credentials on this scale, guess what? He is brought low. But those who empty themselves in obeying God humbles themselves and is exalted. And it's interesting Investing our lives for God's eternity. It says there, going back into Matthew chapter 16, it says, What good will it do to a person if he gains the whole world but forfeits his soul? Or what will a person give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and then will repay every person according to his good works, to his deeds, to the things that he has done to benefit the lives of others for sake of the gospel. I want to take you to a little video here to demonstrate that from the Hewa tribe in Papua New Guinea. This is a testimony. All around us in the valley live the Kimio spirits that we fear. My father taught us that the evil spirits are alive and living all around us. So we build our houses high in the mountains. We don't want the spirits to look into the house and see us and bring sickness. So we line our house with bark on the inside. If we hunt in the valley, we return quickly and always take a dog with us to protect us from the spirits. Be careful, my father would say, so the spirits don't eat you. We didn't understand the reason for death, and so we lived in fear. My father, Alimbu, killed many people that he thought had evil spirits living in them. He believed that these people were the cause of the sickness and death, and so he killed them. I followed the same dark trail. But God allowed a great sickness to come to our village, and we were all very afraid. We thought that we were all going to die. Three graves were already outside my house when God sent Jonathan and Yannis to put medicine in our mouths. To our surprise, we were soon able to sit up and look around. We hadn't died, but instead returned to life. This made me want to hear what the foreigner had to say. We invited them to come teach God's words, and we celebrated with a big feast. God's Spirit came and helped my heart to think. I realized that I had been living in darkness. My eyes were blinded, my mouth unable to speak truth, and my heart was blocked from understanding. I was trapped like on a pig roll, tied by Satan to my ancestors' trail. Jonathan cleared a new trail for me to follow, but it was truly Jesus who came to rescue me when I understood the message of Jesus and how he died. It was like Jesus came and cut the rope that was tying me. I was free, free to follow his trail. I now understand that there is no other trail but the trail of Jesus. I often think, what would have happened to those people had Jonathan and Susan and the rest of the team not gone to those people? They would have perished forever in eternity, never knowing that there was a way of escape from the bondage and fear of sin that they lived in over and over again. And we just had three families complete the teaching of, of the chronological teaching from creation to the cross among a people group called the Malayali. And this wife of one of the families wrote this in a note to me. She said, this journey has never been easy. And we can relate to that. But it has been worth it. For we left all things because the message was too great not to share. And it has been our joy because the sender is too great not to obey. 
And boy, I look at that and I say, thank you, Lord, for sending these young families that are willing to stand in the gap and reach unreached people with the gospel. 3,250 people groups who have never, ever been engaged with the message, who will perish forever. But the good news is that we know God tells us the end of the story, that there are going to be worshipers from every one of those people groups. How much time we have to get the job done, I don't know. But I know Jesus will return at that time. I want to take you to a story. On one of our furloughs, we came home. We now call it home assignment. I had never been to a professional anything. And a buddy of mine had tickets to the Baltimore Orioles. And he said, hey, you want to go to a game? I'm like, yeah. So we get down to Baltimore. There were 42,000 people filling. I think they seat somewhere around 45,000. 42,000 people in the stands that night. And as the players came out onto the field with the managers and everything at the beginning of the game, you know how they sing the national anthem? I'm standing there in this sea of humanity, and it's like, I have never in my life been in a crowd this big. And as I was standing there, my mind was taken back to an article I read in Sports Illustrated many, 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 many years ago. There was a coach of Oklahoma University by the name of Bud Wilkinson. And they had interviewed him in Sports Illustrated, and they asked him this question. He was a football coach, but I'm standing at a baseball game thinking about this story. And they asked Bud, they said, what do you feel football contributes to physical exercise? And I'm like, oh, this is going to be a good article. So I'm reading on, and he says, absolutely nothing. I'm like, come on, Bud, what, what's wrong with you? Football is a grueling game, you know. And, 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 but he was looking at it from this perspective. If you take all the players and the managers and everyone involved, the owners, and then you consider the people sitting in the stands and you combine them as a whole and look what it contributes to physical exercise, it's very little. Oh, yeah, the players out on the field to play, they're getting the exercise, but the people in the stands, you know, they're just sitting there watching the game. And as I stood there when they were singing the national anthem, that picture came to me that night and I thought, you know what? This is kind of the way we see missions. Okay, the church is sitting in the stands. They're providing the support and the prayer, which is good. But we need to see churches raising up laborers who will go. How easy is it to give our prayers and our resources? But do we recognize young people within the structure of the church that we can begin to focus upon and train and equip so that when they're making a career choice, they'll say, hey, I want to go engage with one of these people, people groups that have never heard the gospel. So that night as I saw the players on the field, I thought, you know what? Those players on the field are really the ones doing the hard work who need some rest, and the people in the stands need some exercise. Let's get out on, onto the field of play and get the job done. And I conclude with this. You can remain in the stands, or you can join us on the fields where the harvest needs to be brought in. And let me tell you, people, the harvest is ripe. Among the people groups that we ministered to in the country of Papua New Guinea, there are 862 languages spoken in that people, in that people group. And during our time there, we had people from outlying areas coming to us saying, we want someone to bring us this message. And I got to tell you, in the first tribe that we worked in, the gospel was so impacting and so life-changing among those people that those living in outlying villages of that same language group, they began to say, you guys are not doing the spirit appeasement. You're not placating the spirits as, as we were taught. And bad stuff is going to happen to us. And guess what? Bad stuff was not happening. And as a result of it, they came and they, they said, we want to hear too. And eventually they came and they heard. And they were able to respond and receive Jesus as their Savior. Now we began to disciple. We began to equip so that those people who were intermarried into those other surrounding language groups could go and reach them. And we're duplicating that all over the country. Uh, right now, we could probably put to work 2,000 people easily. We, have, we are entering a new people group every 45 days. That means we are reaching eight new languages every year. But you know what? We cannot continue doing that unless God gives us the personnel to raise up those who will be the Bible teachers, the church planters, the mechanics, the school teachers, whatever it is to fit into these roles. And I'll leave you again with a question today. What will you do to change eternity for someone? It might be a neighbor. It might be a family member. It might be going uh, across the street. It might be going across town. It might be going into another culture. But God wants us to be involved in what he's doing for the glory of his great name. Let me pray. And then I'll have uh, Pastor Wayne come and close out. Father, I just thank you for the fact that 
uh, you give us insight from your word of what your purpose is and your desire that all people may hear the gospel and be able to enjoy sweet fellowship with you, Lord. And, and we just pray that uh, there would be an avalanche of blessing brought upon people that would impact them with the gospel. But Lord, we need labors. labors. The harvest is plentiful. It's ripe. And it needs to be brought in. So, God, I thank you for this people. I thank you for the involvement they have with many missionaries around the world, with the the giving, the praying, the sending. Lord, bless them and multiply that effort for the glory of your great name, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we close the service, the instrumentalist is going to play a hymn, a hymn about dedication, a hymn about yieldedness to Christ. And I want to do our invitation a little bit different today as our staff is gathering over there, willing to pray with anybody young, old, who would say, I, I just, I don't know what God has me to do, but I am willing and interested in maybe having, if God is going to use, wants to use me, I would, I'd gladly go into the mission field. I gladly surrender for that. And I'd like to just pray with somebody who would get, who would be able to hold me up in prayer as I'm seeking God's guidance in this area. Or you're here this morning and you'd say, I don't even know what this guy's talking about. I have made a public profession by going to church that Jesus is somebody special. But I have never taken him into my life personally. I have never personally admitted that I'm a sinner. That I personally need a Savior. And that Jesus died for me upon the cross. I would like to give you this opportunity that as we just have a quiet time of prayer and the instrumentalist is praying is playing you can go over there and talk with somebody about your salvation to make it really simple i'm just going to ask you to prayerfully stand before the lord and if any young person adult couple would like to go and pray with somebody about god leading in their life go and do that right now over to that side of the auditorium If you're here, you're not sure you're on your way to heaven, go over there as well and ask one of them to pray with you, to help you to be determined to know that you're on your way to heaven. And while you're standing there, pray and say, God, who would you have me to go to this week in my neighborhood, in my school, in my development? Who would you like me to go talk to? you're yielding your hearts to the Lord and saying, God, please use me. Please don't help me to become cold. Help me to have a tender heart. Help me to have the boldness, Lord, to share the gospel and not just hang on to it to myself. You're praying. God is laying people on your heart. Will you go? Will you go this week? To friends, neighbor, family, will you go? Father, help us to be people who are faithful in not just amening the gospel, but actually getting it out. Help us to do it even as we can become support peoples, which is great, but even as we become the active participants in sharing the gospel. Guide and direct, help us to be drawn to more service for Christ, in whose name I pray. Amen.